and welcome to the first episode of But Did They Do It podcast. Oh my gosh. I am your host, McKinley Daw, and I am so excited that this is finally happening. If you aren't aware, the trailer came out a week from the day that this is coming out. So Tuesday of last week. And it went way better than I could have ever imagined. So I just want to thank everyone who gave it a listen and followed the Instagram. We're actually already almost at 100 followers on the Instagram, which is crazy. So if you want to go follow the podcast's Instagram, it's at but did they do it pod. So go give it a follow. I'll be posting pictures about every episode there, announcements and things like that. But anyways, there are a few things I wanted to mention before we hop into the episode today. I did want to introduce myself in the trailer, but the trailer ended up being a minute long, which is a standard length for a podcast trailer. So I didn't want to drag it on. So I figured I'd just introduce myself while we are here. So I am McKinley Daw. I am the host of But Did They Do It podcast. I am a senior in high school and I am planning on attending Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah at the end of August. And I think I'm going to major in political science, but someone told me recently that political science was the most useless degree that they ever received. So I'm kind of starting to rethink what I want to do. So we'll see if I end up doing something else. I still have like two years of generals before I have to decide my major. So I'll keep thinking about it. But for now, I think I'm going to stick with political science. And I would like to attend law school after BYU. And fingers crossed, work for the Innocence Project. That's what I really want to do. I want to help innocent people get out of jail. And that passion for... That type of law is where the idea for this podcast came from. So it's all connected. But anyways, that's a little bit about me, but let's hop right into the episode. Today, we are going to be talking about the Angie Dodge case. Angie Ray Dodge was born on December 21st, 1977 in Vancouver, Washington to Jack and Carol Dodge. She was the youngest of four children and the only girl in her family. She was a very smart and intelligent young woman Angie graduated from Idaho Falls High School with honors and continued her education at Idaho State University for some time. She loved the outdoors, camping, Christmas, and her car, which was affectionately nicknamed Boat. When Angie was 18 years old, she moved into her own apartment in Idaho Falls, Idaho, and Angie's mom, Carol, recalls Angie as being excited for this new phase in her life, but she was facing the usual hardships that teenagers face of growing up and being on their own without their parents being there to do things for them. On the night of June 13th, 1996, Angie had a few friends over that left around 12.30 a.m. Angie then did her usual routine and went to bed around 12.45, 1 a.m. A man then broke into Angie's apartment, raping and brutally stabbing her and leaving DNA evidence behind. Her body was discovered in the morning by two co-workers from the salon she worked at who came to check in on her when she didn't show up for work that morning. Carol Dodge, Angie's mom, then called the salon to try and get in contact with her daughter and that was when she was informed that her daughter, Angie Dodge, had been murdered. The Idaho Falls Police Department immediately got to work investigating and processing the crime scene. Investigators collected semen, hairs, and fingerprints from a bloody handprint that was actually left on Angie's stomach. 
DNA testing that was available at the time, which obviously this is 1996, DNA testing hasn't come as far as it has now, but from the testing they did, it showed that the samples belonged to the same person. They were all one person, but that person was unknown still to the Idaho Falls Police Department. In the months following Angie's murder, IFPD was desperately chasing any leads they could muster. Police even went and asked for DNA samples from teenagers who were associated with Angie. And this is when our first suspect voluntarily provides his DNA to the case. Seven months after Angie's murder in January of 1997, a man named Benjamin Hobbs, who was a friend of Angie's, was arrested in Eli, Nevada for attempted rape and using a knife in the commission of a crime. So obviously, this attempted rape with a knife is very similar to Angie's brutal murder in Idaho Falls. So an Idaho Falls detective flew out to Nevada to interview Benjamin Hobbs about a possible involvement he might have had. While that Idaho Falls detective was in Nevada interviewing Ben Hobbs, a close friend of Ben Hobbs, Christopher Tapp, was picked up and brought into the police department to be interviewed about his Hobbs' possible involvement in Angie's murder. Christopher Tapp was first interviewed by Detective Furman on January 7, 1997. And I find it important to mention here how Detective Furman was previously a resource officer at Christopher Tapp's school. So Christopher Tapp trusted Detective Furman when this interview was taking place and they knew each other. In this first interview, Tapp is asked to provide an alibi as to where he was the night of the murder. Tapp says that he was at his apartment all night, which if you're going to give an alibi, always give a truthful one, but the alibi of being at your apartment all night, not a great one. But his alibi was later proven false by the interview and testimony given by Tapp's roommate, who said that he hadn't returned home until approximately 2 a.m. on June 13, 1996. Detectives then bring up the interview they did with a girl, and I don't feel like it's important to put her name out there. Her name isn't that important to the case, and so I'm just not going to say it. She came forward saying that she overheard Christopher Tapp and Benjamin Hobbs talking at a party a couple days after the murder about how they needed an alibi. Tapp denied that that ever happened and said that he didn't remember it. Detective Furman then informs Christopher Tapp that he could be charged with first-degree murder if he doesn't cooperate. Now, let me just say this. This is where this case kind of starts to get shady. Like, he has been being interviewed, Christopher Tapp has been being interviewed by Detective Furman for, let's say, a few hours now. And he hasn't implicated that he's done anything in this crime or was involved in this crime. He is simply there to give information as to whether or not his friend told him anything about what he may or may not have done. So the fact that he's saying that you could be charged with first-degree murder if you don't tell me what happened, that's shady. So tides start to change at this point. Detective Furman then asked Chris if Ben meant to kill Angie. So we're just hopping right into assuming that Ben Hobbs is guilty. And Christopher Tapp says no while shaking his head. Tapp is then asked if it was a spur of the moment type thing. And he doesn't verbally answer, but shakes his head no. 
Furman asked Chris if Angie had caused any problems between Ben and Ben's wife, Deanne. Which, according to the research that I saw, I wouldn't say that Benjamin Hobbs and Christopher Tapp and Angie Dodge were like this best friend trio. Like, they were associates. They knew of each other. They might have been in the same friend group, but like, not close enough for Angie to be causing problems between Ben Hobbs and his wife. Christopher Tapp said that Angie had caused some problems between Ben and his wife, but detectives never asked him to elaborate on exactly what those problems were, so we don't know. At this point in the interview, Detective Furman begins to disclose private information about the case to Christopher Tapp. Now, if some of you listening may not know, in a police interrogation, it is common procedure and practice for an investigator to withhold information from the public and from the person they're interviewing that only the killer would know, such as like what type of weapon was used, what state the body was in, what the person was wearing, etc. So that if a person were to come forward and confess to a crime and know those secret details that were never released to the public, the police will know they have got their guy since those were details only the killer would ever know. But anyways, the detective tells Christopher Tapp that a knife was used in the attack and that there were multiple stab wounds and cuts all over her body. Again, private information you would want to keep secret because the fact that she was stabbed and that a knife was used in the attack were only things that the killer would have known. Tapp is then told that Benjamin Hobbs could be implementing him in the crime and that is why he is being interviewed which is a lie. He was picked up because he was an associate of Hobbs and they had a few questions for him, but it is not illegal for cops to lie in an interrogation. So just a little bit shady, but I'll allow it. Tap then states that Benjamin Hobbs is probably saying that he helped. And once again, detectives don't ask questions that would make him elaborate on this answer. Like, did you help? did Ben Hobbs do this? What did you do to help him? And like, nothing was ever elaborated on. So we like, don't get any answers from this, which is ridiculous. But jumping forward to three days later on January 10th, Chris Tapp comes in to take a polygraph. Now let me say this, never take a polygraph, people. They aren't reliable at all. Like, in a polygraph, they hook you up to a machine. If you haven't seen a person hooked up to a polygraph machine, you can look it up and you can find videos of people hooked up to polygraph machines all over YouTube. But they put sensors on your chest to see what your heart rate is as they ask you questions, if your heart rate spikes during a certain question or if it stays normal during others. And they connect sensors to your fingers to see if you're sweating. So this machine basically monitors all of the telltale signs of a person who is lying, which sometimes those telltale signs aren't right. So let's say, for me example, if I was going into a police station to be interviewed and I get hooked up to a machine and they start asking me questions about a crime I know nothing about, obviously I'm going to be nervous and I'm going to sweat and my heart's going to be racing because I don't know what they're talking about and I'm scared. So, in conclusion, just never take a polygraph. They're never reliable unless you're innocent, but even then it could show that you're lying. So, 
It's just all over the place. Just don't take a polygraph. Take my word for it. So detectives tell Christopher that he was being deceptive after each polygraph he took, which after the course of several interviews, I think he took like five or six polygraphs, which one is bad. Taking one polygraph is bad, but taking five or six, like that is over the line. Like interrogators don't need five or six polygraphs in their investigation. That's just overdoing it and ridiculous to me. Um, I could never find any legal or court documents that or like true conclusions that showed me that the results from the polygraph were that he was being deceptive, but I don't know. Detectives could have just been telling him that. It could have been true, but either way, it doesn't matter. Polygraphs don't matter. After the polygraph, Tap tells detectives that Ben Hobbs killed Angie and that he had confided in Chris about it. Detectives then keep pushing Chris to go into more detail about what happened, but he keeps telling them that he wants to leave and detectives tell him that he can't. Now, keep in mind, at this point, Christopher Tapp is not in custody. He, there is no warrant for his arrest. He is voluntarily at this police station at this time, taking a polygraph and being interviewed by the police voluntarily. He does not have to stay there. He has every right to leave, but detectives tell him to stay. Chris Tapp then says, quote, I didn't go with them. I swear I didn't go with them. Now, this is the first time that Tapp implicates that there were multiple people involved, which was IFPD's theory throughout the entire investigation that three people committed this murder, which to me doesn't make any sense. Why would there be a need for three people to subdue and rape and murder a woman who is vulnerably sleeping? It just makes things more complicated. And what did they do? Like clean up the other two's DNA and be like, well, we're just going to leave the one. Like, no, they either would have cleaned up all of it or they would have left all of it. So it honestly just doesn't make any sense. But maybe that's just my opinion. That's what I think this theory that three people were involved doesn't have much sustenance to it. After Chris admits that Ben Hobbs killed Angie and told Chris about it, Chris is then allowed to take a smoke break. So he goes outside, he takes his smoke. Once Chris returns to the room, Detective Furman begins to educate him on DNA evidence and how they could have found his DNA at the scene. And if his DNA is at the scene, then it is over for him and he is going to jail for the rest of his life. Which, at the beginning of this interview, They did offer him an immunity deal saying, like, if you tell us what happened, you won't go to jail for that long. You can testify and this and this and this. But throughout these interrogations, they're like, well, we're going to take that away if you don't tell us what happened, which kind of is like forcing him to tell them what happened, make up a story, whatever it may be. The January 10th interview then comes to a close and Chris Tapp is told to come back the next day for another interview. When Chris didn't show up for his January 11th interview, Detective Furman went to Tapp's mother's house to try and contact him. And Tapp's mother informed detectives that Chris had obtained an attorney, finally, and that he would be in contact with them in a few days. Detectives decided not to wait the few days and obtain a warrant for Christopher Tapp's arrest and that same day arrested him for accessory to murder and rape. So he starts off with being charged with accessory to murder and rape. Keep that in mind. Once Tapp is brought into custody, he is put into an interview room once again, and detectives are told to wait for Tapp's lawyer before they begin questioning him, 
he has the right to an attorney and detectives legally have to wait for that lawyer to show up before they start questioning him. But they start to question him without the presence of his lawyer anyways. Just one shady thing after another. Let me just say that. A week later, on January 18th, the DNA from the crime scene came back as not matching Christopher Tapp or Benjamin Hobbs. So you would think at this point, after holding Christopher Tapp for a week, they'd be like, oh, hey man, like, that's our bad. You obviously weren't at the crime scene. Your DNA doesn't match. Like, you can go. We're so, so sorry. We've been harassing you. Like, go ahead. Be free. Like, we're so sorry. But no, they begin to question him as to who this supposed third person and who was involved was. Like, what? The three-person theory doesn't make any sense. Please tell me I'm not alone in this thinking. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. So at this point, Chris has no option but to implicate a third person. So Chris then implicates Jeremy Sargas as also supposedly being at Angie's apartment that night. After DNA testing, Jeremy Sargas was also found not to be at the crime scene, and he had a solid alibi. So Jeremy Sargas is now out of the picture. His DNA wasn't at the crime scene, and he had a solid alibi. Investigators become frustrated with Chris and took away the immunity deals that they offered him earlier and told him that he wasn't telling the truth about this supposed third person that was at the crime scene that night. So from this point on in the investigation, there are several different interviews that take place over the rest of January of 1997. I have read summarized transcripts of each of these interviews and even tried to obtain the video footage, but I had no success. But if you are interested in reading these summarized transcripts, I will link them in our show notes so you can go read those. They're actually really interesting if you're interested in that kind of stuff. But basically, throughout the rest of the interviews and polygraphs, Chris Tapp, little by little, provides a corrupted confession that was almost completely provided to him by interrogators. Like, for example, in one of the later interviews, they ask Chris Tapp, what was Angie wearing? when you murdered her. And he says, t-shirt and sweats comes to mind. Now, t-shirt and sweats is a pretty common thing for women to wear to bed. So he could have just known that because like, that's just what women wear to bed. Like, it's not that crazy. It's not like he was like, she was wearing green sweats and a blue t-shirt. He just said she was wearing t-shirt and sweats. They never asked him to elaborate. They then ask him what her shirt was like when she, after he killed her and he said that it was cut and they said no it well was it wasn't cut was skin showing was it pulled up and he's like oh yeah yeah it was pulled up like they provided that detail to him like he didn't know that and it's pretty clear throughout all of the interviews that he wasn't aware of some things that happened at the crime scene that the killer would know and police gave it to him anyways to make him look guilty on January 29th, he is taken to the crime scene and is told to act, I say act with quotes around it, act out what happened the night Angie was murdered. In the Dateline episode on this case, the detectives say things like, we could see it in his eyes, like he was reliving that night, he knew what happened, he strategically and carefully told us exactly what happened and exactly what he did and what happened in the apartment that night, how he got it in, etc., etc. But keep in mind, prior to this point, he has been interviewed several times where 
these detectives had fed him information that would help him at this point. They told him how Angie had been killed, where her body was found, and what condition it was. He knew what she was wearing. And to me, that is the majority of what he would have needed to provide detectives at the apartment that day he was acting it out. He could have filled in the rest of the bubbles and detectives would have never known. So that another shady thing. On February 3rd, Christopher Tapp was charged with first degree murder, rape, and use of a deadly weapon in a commission of a crime. So he originally went to being an accessory to being the sole mastermind and with the charge of first degree murder, rape, and the deadly weapon. And at this point, though Benjamin Hobbs was convicted of this sexual assault that took place in Nevada, he was never arrested or charged in the murder of Angie Dodge, which, according to Chris Tapp's confession, Benjamin Hobbs in the beginning was like the only person that committed this murder, and he just confided in Chris about it. So how it escalated to this point where Chris Tapp is the only one being arrested and charged for this, I'm not sure how it got to that point, but it just seems kind of bizarre to me. Christopher Tapp's trial began on May 12th, 1998, and Christopher Tapp's attorney tried to have the confession suppressed, meaning it couldn't be used in court and the prosecutor's case would essentially crumble since all the evidence they have against him is circumstantial. They can't place him at the crime scene because his DNA wasn't there. They didn't have any witnesses. All they had was his coerced confession. That's the only evidence they had against him. So it's very circumstantial. There's no solid evidence here. And trial continued and the confession was used anyways. Most of the trial was taken up by the confession tapes and police explanation testimony. The girl who even claimed she had overheard Hobbs and Tapp talking about the crime at a party a few days after the murder testified at the trial. But she came out later saying that her testimony was false and that she was high on drugs at the party and that she felt coerced by cops to say what she had said. After 16 days of trial, a jury of nine women and three men convicted Christopher Tapp of all three charges on May 28, 1998. He received a sentence of life in prison with 30 years for the murder conviction and 10 years for the rape conviction. Chris Tapp appealed his conviction many times, but all of his appeals were denied except for one post-conviction relief petition, but he remained in jail. 20 years later, Carol Dodge, Angie's mom, who, by the way, has been girl-bossing all of these years searching for her daughter's killer because the Idaho Falls Police Department hasn't been giving her updates. She wasn't aware of anything they were doing before Christopher Tapp was arrested. So she was kind of kept out of the loop, and I think that is really sad that being the mother of the victim, that she wasn't informed of what was happening in her daughter's case or anything like that. But after all of these years, she partnered with the Idaho Innocence Project to get Chris Tapp exonerated. And if you don't know what exonerate means, it basically means to get a person out of jail and get the charges off of their record. So you can get out of jail and still have the charges on your record. So it makes it hard for you to get a job and do things like that. But to become exonerated means you get out of jail and those charges get off your record and it's like it never happened. Throughout the years that Chris Tapp was in jail, Carol actually wholeheartedly believed that Chris Tapp was the one who murdered her daughter until she obtained the interview tapes and watched them 
And she also found out from a police report she obtained that Christopher Tubbs' DNA was not at the crime scene. She didn't know that his DNA wasn't at the crime scene until 20 years after the fact. Like, how do detectives not tell her that? So after finding all of that stuff out, she's like, wow, this guy did not kill my daughter. And she joins in the fight to get him out of prison, which I think is really cool. In 2017, Christopher Tapp's attorneys and the prosecutor came to an agreement to reduce the murder sentence and dismiss the rape conviction. Christopher Tapp was resentenced for 20 years, but was amended for time served, and he was released from prison. So because at that point he had already served 20 years of his old life sentence, and then he was resentenced to 20 years, he had already served that, so he was released from prison but still had that first-degree murder charge on his record. After Chris Tapp was released, the hunt for the actual killer began, even though legally Chris Tapp was still charged with that first-degree murder in Angie's case. The IFPD paired up with Parabon Nano Labs in November of 2018 to use the newest advancement in criminal DNA testing, genetic genealogy. Now, I am not going to pretend like I know anything about what genetic genealogy is, because it is an extremely confusing subject, but this article from East Idaho News really explains it best, so I'm just going to read a part of that article word for word so you can understand it best. Genetic genealogy uses advanced DNA testing in combination with innovative genetic analysis, sophisticated identification techniques, and traditional genealogical methods to establish the relationship between an individual and their ancestors. Parabon submitted a genetic data profile created from the crime scene DNA sample to a public genetic genealogy database for the comparison in hopes of finding individuals who shared significant amounts of DNA with the unknown subject. They utilized other information to narrow down the possibilities before a final list of six people was produced. The science showed that DNA collected from just one of the individuals on this list even if it wasn't a match to the DNA at the 1996 crime scene, would lead to the further identification of the suspect DNA. Holy crap. That was a lot. So hopefully you got the gist of it. Basically, they were saying that they created a genetic data profile from this DNA sample from the crime scene. So they actually produced a picture, like what the suspect would have looked like at age 25 just from his DNA. How crazy is that? That just seems insane to me that we can do all of that now with just a tiny ounce of DNA. And the picture that they produced from this DNA will be up on our Instagram if you want to go check that out. It's actually very interesting. And But basically, they did that. And then these six people, even if they weren't the suspect and weren't a match, they could be related to the suspect, if that makes sense. So at this point, the Idaho Falls Police Department begins their hunt for a DNA sample from one of these six suspected people. They firstly took a team of detectives to Twin Falls, Idaho to monitor the closest lead. While detectives were monitoring this man, he stepped out of a building and spit out a wad of chewing tobacco before getting his car and driving away. Detectives then collected the tobacco with hopes that it would contain enough DNA for analysis. After the sample was sent off and expedited, the DNA profile came back as negative to the DNA found at the 1996 crime scene. After more genetic genealogy analysis, it indicated that the crime scene DNA 
belonged to someone who was closely related to the person whose DNA investigators obtained from that tobacco sample. So essentially, the crime scene DNA and the DNA that came from the tobacco sample, those people were closely related. And this is where it starts to get really crazy and confusing. So put on your seatbelts, grab some popcorn, you are in for the ride of your lives. Okay, the team at Parabon actually found a digital obituary from a small library across the country. This obituary was for a woman whose daughter had been married briefly into a family tree that was indicated in the genealogical analysis, but this marriage was ended before any children could be born, so IFPD believed that this branch of the family tree did not produce any suspects. The obituary, though, did list that this woman had a son who was born after her first divorce to the male and the suspect's family line, but before her second marriage. This child had the DNA of the family line indicated by the genealogical analysis, but he had been raised under a different last name. He had been raised under his stepfather's last name. So, drumroll please, Brian Drips was this man's name. And Idaho Falls detectives found through different documents and records that Brian Drips was living across the street from the apartment Angie Dodge had been living in and was killed in. Like, can you believe that? He was there the entire time. How did they not interview him? He was never interviewed or suspected. Like, this kind of came out completely out of the blue. Like, Every crime movie, not that I'm saying those are completely accurate, but the first thing they always do is interview the surrounding people. Did you see anything? Did you hear anything? Like, that's the first thing you do. And they would have interviewed him and they probably would have seen that something was off with him. And it could have, this investigation could have been over with from the beginning. But no, the IFPD confirmed their suspicions when they submitted a discarded cigarette that was smoked by Brian Drips, and that test came back positive as matching the DNA left at the crime scene. Brian Drips was arrested and charged on May 15, 2019. He initially denied being involved in the crimes, but according to court documents, he later confessed and said that he acted alone, which I've been saying this entire time. I told you guys, the three people theory did not make any sense. And I was right. It didn't make sense because that's not what happened. He said that he entered her apartment with only the intent to rape her, but that during the commission of the rape, he cut her throat, which to me, this seems extremely premeditated because if she was asleep in her bed and you only went into the apartment with the intent to rape her, why would you need a knife? Why would you grab a knife? Like, why would you have that with you? So, because of that reason, it seems premeditated to me, but that's just my opinion. On July 11th, 2019, Chris Tapp was finally exonerated of this first-degree murder charge. Woo! So, legally, it's like it never happened. But if you think about it, the public aspect is still out there. People still know that he was in jail for 20 years. The media coverage of this case was great. Everyone knows that Christopher Tapp was in jail for Angie Dodge's murder. And to some people, they might not care whether he got out of jail and that is now off his legal record. To them, he still served time. And I think that's really sad that because he was wrongfully convicted and detectives and police didn't take their time to find the real killer, he will 
have a tarnished reputation for the rest of his life. And I think that's really sad. But Christopher Tapp did file a lawsuit against the Idaho Falls Police Department and several detectives, including Detective Furman, who was actually mayor at the time Chris Tapp got out of jail, which I find kind of ironic. On June 17th, 2021, the governor of Idaho, Brad Little, and two other members of the Idaho Board of Examiners approved a payment of $1.2 million to go to Christopher Tapp, which, good for him. I'm glad he got at least a little, some, not, I wouldn't, not a little bit. He got a lot of compensation for those 20 years he spent in prison. So I'm just happy that he got that. On June 8th, 2021, a 55-year-old Brian Drips was sentenced to life in prison with 20 years before he could become eligible for parole. According to his lawyers, due to Brian Drips' failing health, he will likely die before he is ever eligible for parole. And that is the story of the Angie Dodge case. Isn't that one crazy, guys? That is probably one of my favorite cases that has to do with a wrongful conviction ever. Probably second to the Making a Murderer case, which go watch that on Netflix if you haven't. It's a really good documentary. But if you want to check out our Instagram for pictures of those associated with the case, it is at But Did They Do It Pod. And I will talk to you guys next week. Bye.